All right, church, we're going we're gonna to gather back together. Good to be here. My name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Greeley. Glad to be together this morning. If you're new with us or you missed even last week, uh, two weeks ago we ended our uh, sermon series in the book of Acts where we walked verse by verse through that amazing book, 28 chapters packed full of the reality that God's kingdom is coming. And then last week, we uh, started a small sermon series. We're going to do this for about five weeks, which is Thy Kingdom Come. It is not Thy Kingdom Come. It is Prepare the Way, excuse me. Um, Heads in a different space. Um, Where we are going to walk through just some different uh, realities of the Old Testament, preparing the way for us to see Jesus, the coming Messiah, the long-awaited King. And uh, at the end of October, October 30th, we are actually going to jump into the book of John, and then we're going to study verse by verse through that book um, for the foreseeable future, the next year or so. And so praise God for that. Uh, Last week, as we kicked off this uh, sermon series of Prepare the Way, we looked at creation, right? God's either amazing coincidence, no, his masterful intention, that God in his efforts to prepare humanity, the world, for the coming king, began orchestrating all of creation, setting the stage, the props, the players to fulfill his masterful plan. That he, unlike us, who stress or have anxiety around planning, he, with great power and control, uh, invites us along to uh, to participate and anticipate what he is doing, and specifically anticipate what he's doing in the Old Testament prior to bringing it to pass in the face of his son, Jesus, as the Christ. So this morning we're going to hop into the Gospel of John merely for a couple seconds, and so if you have your Bibles, you can open it uh, with me to John chapter 5 as we consider the second element of our New Old Testament journey of preparing the way. Last week was creation. This week we're going to be looking at the law. The sermon title for this morning comes right out of John chapter 5, verse 46, and it's these couple words, Moses wrote of Jesus. That is the sermon title for this morning, Moses wrote of Jesus. So if you can, open your Bibles with me, turn to the Gospel of John chapter 5, and we're only going to read two verses. Jesus is uh, in a long monologue. Um, articulating who he is to the Jews of his day. And in the midst of, uh, of that is this statement, specifically to the leadership of the Jewish people. And he says, starting in verse 46, John chapter 5, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? If you're reading along with us in Abide, you know this week we read several different texts concerning certain elements of God's law given to the Israelite nation. And God's righteous stance against sin, the payment that he demands, and the fulfillment of that in the New Testament. These are but a small drop in the bucket when it comes to all that God has to say 
around righteous living. In the Old Testament, we can find 613 recorded laws given by God to His people that they give guidance and instructions on several different levels from morality to ceremony and civil topics, and they are most likely what we think about when we consider the idea of the law in the Old Testament. The individual instructions given by God, His rules, that God established for His people. Now, depending on your wiring, you either like rules or you don't like rules. You don't have to probably consider um, me and think about me or know me very well to know where I land on that spectrum. I sit in the opposite seat of the aisle as my beautiful bride. We'll leave that alone for right now. Regardless of your disposition towards rules, is that God's intent for how we ought to understand and interact with the idea of the law? A seemingly random, and if we are honest, a strange list of do's and don'ts, aren't they? In short, I would say this isn't what we ought to think about when we consider the idea of God's law. Specifically, because when we think of it this way, it can lead us towards confusion, at times moralistic pursuits, and it's disconnected from the author's intent. So, this morning's goal, the aim, is to consider Jesus' words here in John, specifically one profound statement there in verse 26, for he wrote of me, and allow that to shape our understanding and our viewpoint concerning the law. We know our own natural inclination, at least my own natural inclination, when we think of the law. We think of a long list of do's and a long list of don't that God has given to his people. But the biblical way to consider the law is the historical way that it should be understood, which is as the Torah. The word Torah gets translated into English as law. And historically, it encompasses the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All of these books are believed to be written by Moses and are often called the Pentateuch, which in Greek simply means five books. And as we've seen here in John chapter 5, and we will notice elsewhere in the New Testament, that the law, when it's being referenced, more often than not, is not a simple list that is being referenced. Instead, it's the whole five books that Mo Moses wrote. Now, why is that an important clarification? Simply put, to rightly understand the intent of Moses' writings and therefore the laws given within those pages, it requires context. Stripping the laws out of their context leaves you and I at best with imperfect understanding and therefore imperfect application, and at worst, wrong understanding and wrong application. You can make conclusions concerning something on face value, but without its context, you are left to imagine and fill in the blanks of many of the questions surrounding it. Consider this picture with me for a moment. Can you throw this up on the, uh, up on the screen? 
Yeah. This object, this object, sits on my nightstand right next to my bed. Looking at it, we know that it's a cow. Hopefully we all know that that is a cow. And you know where it's located because I told you that it sits on my nightstand. On face value, it is, for many of you, an odd thing for a man in his mid-30s to have on his nightstand. Unless, of course, you know some of the context. The story that goes along with it, first and foremost, is that many of you know that I daylight as a dairy farmer, that my family owns and operates a dairy farm southeast of Greeley, and I spend more time than I would like to admit doing that, and that I love cows. I love them. They seem to like me, and it's a good relationship. Second, this particular little cow was given to me by my youngest child, who after earning points in his kindergarten class, took those points, he redeemed them in the in-class store, and he bought it for me. And now it sits on my nightstand where I look at it every day and I think of him. And God's unique and special wiring the way that he created my little man. And if you don't know all that, it's just a silly old cow sitting on a man's nightstand. So if context is critical, how do we get context for the laws within the law, which is the Torah, so that we might better understand God's intent And how does all of that prepare the way? Because as Jesus said here in John chapter 5, Moses wrote of him. So the roadmap for the rest of our time this morning is I want to take us back to the Old Testament law, the Torah, starting in Genesis, and I want to work our way through that account at a very high level. Through Genesis, into Exodus, Leviticus, Did I say at a high level? We're going to do it at a high level. Numbers and Deuteronomy, making every effort, quite frankly, not to get too deep into the weeds of some amazing and well-known stories and characters, but instead try to tie together the account showing us how it prepares the way for Jesus. All right. Moses wrote of Jesus. Lead on. And may we see him. Amen? Buckle up, here we go. Genesis. The first book of five that Moses wrote starts with the beginning, the origin of God creating the world, what we spent time talking about last week. The book of Genesis can be broken into two large parts. Genesis chapter 1 through 11, God in the world, and Genesis 12 through 50, God and one family. 
We know that from last week that God created the world and everything in it, and many different times he calls what he has done as good. God crafts the Garden of Eden. He makes Adam a man, and that name Adam literally means humanity, and he makes a helper for him, Eve, which literally means life. And he placed him in the garden in God's presence to be God's reflection of his image to the world that he created. Sadly, we know this paradise in the garden did not last as Adam and Eve were charged with ruling under God's guidance and care, and instead they choose to rebel seeking to manifest their own idea of what is good, they make a mess of everything. Sin enters the world and with it much suffering. Genesis traces the downward spiral of humanity until in chapter 5 of Genesis, God in his sorrow washes clean the earth with a flood, sparing only a man named Noah, his family, and the animals. Humanity tries again, and it rebuilds with the new technology of the brick. They come together desiring to make a name for themselves at the Tower of Babel. God sees only destruction in their pursuit and lovingly scatters them by confusing their language. The first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis leaves one wondering, How will God's people ever get back in God's presence as it once was in the garden? Genesis chapter 12 to 50 focuses on God's plan to use one family largely to bring about such a blessing, and we know that family well, at least the head of that family by the name of Abraham. Abraham has a son, and his name is Isaac, and Isaac has a son, and his name is Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons, and the story of blessing seems to be moving forward with an amazing family, right? However, if we look closely, the family is full of some massive dysfunction. Deceit, jealousy, murderous plans marks the family that God has promised to bless and bring them into his glorious presence. Genesis, the book, closes with a man named Joseph, the favorite son of Jacob, who after being sold into slavery by his jealous brothers, who's taken into Egypt only to be lifted out of slavery and help govern Egypt and provide salvation from a time of significant drought. Genesis ends with the resounding reality that even in the midst of human sin and selfish plans, God remains sovereign to prepare for his plan to bring his blessing and usher his people back into his presence. Which transitions us to the second book, of the Torah, the book of Exodus. Exodus begins with the explosive growth of God's people, who at the end of Genesis migrate to Egypt, where God had shown them so much favor to Joseph. Years pass, the population booms, and there is a new king over Egypt who somehow does not know who Joseph was. And deciding to deal shrewdly with the people 
Pharaoh enslaves God's people, ruthlessly forcing them towards hard labor and even ordering all of their newborn Jewish males to be tossed into the Nile River. One such infant is placed upon the Nile, but in a basket, and his name is Moses. God watches over Moses, and he brings him to safety inside the house of Pharaoh's own daughter. Years later, Moses encounters God through a burning bush that is not consumed. God calls Moses to go before Pharaoh and demand that Pharaoh let the people of God go. This doesn't go real well. Pharaoh resists, digs in his heels. And God brings forth several plagues upon Egypt to persuade Pharaoh to let his people go. Ten different plagues go forth of God's almighty, sovereign hand over the elements of his creation. With the tenth plague resulting in the angel of death. It's here in Exodus chapter 12 where God tells his people to select the lamb. Prepare it to be eaten and take its blood and paint the door frame of their house with its blood so that anyone inside the house might be spared from the angel of death. This is the meal called Passover, which commemorates this significant moment in the story of God's redemption for his people by bringing justice upon humanity while sparing those who sit under the substitutional blood of the Lamb. This final plague causes Pharaoh to allow for the people to go free, at least at first. Sending them away, he has second thoughts almost as soon as they leave. And he gathers his army and he rushes after them to bring them back into slavery. With the Red Sea in front of God's people and the army of Pharaoh and the Egyptians behind them, God splits the Red Sea and he walks them across on dry ground. Only then causing the water to crash in on the Egyptians when they pursue. With salvation in hand, the people of God begin to move from the Red Sea, and yet there is a sense of wandering and wondering, as if asking, what has God saved them to? These are the most known chapters in the books of Exodus, chapters 1 through 18. The rest of the book is largely about the giving of the Ten Commandments and God's detailed instruction for building a sacred tent called the tabernacle. And sandwiched between those two events, the redemption from bondage and God's giving of the law is uh, Exodus chapter 19 which recounts Israel at the mountain of Sinai, where God's presence comes down to the mountain with great smoke and thunder and lightning and darkness. And when the people see the mountain shaking from the presence of the Almighty God, 
They tremble in fear. In fear, they, they tell Moses to go up there. Moses, you go do that. Well, listen to what you have to say, Moses, but you go do that. Like, you go talk to God and come back and tell us what he says. They'll listen to Moses, but they can't go, for they believe that they will die. The presence of God is there right in front of them, inviting them into God's presence through a special and close relationship that the Bible calls a covenant. A covenant is a legal agreement, and it is very special because prior to this, God has only ever asked of his people to trust him, and that he would fulfill the promises to bless them and make them a blessings for others and have them be in his presence. Yet here, God asks them to do something, many things actually. This is the place where the Ten Commandments are given, and if they are followed, they will be God's people as he desires them to be, representing himself to the nations. Agreeing to the terms, but not to go into God's presence, they send Moses up to meet God. Moses goes up to meet God who still desires to have his people with him, and so he gives instructions for the building of a sacred tent called the tabernacle. If you're not going to come to me, I will go to you, is the heart of our God. We know the next part of the story well. Moses comes down the mountain with the Ten Commandments and the blueprint in hand for the tabernacle, and he finds the people of God breaking the first two commandments as they worship a golden calf that they had just made. Moses breaks the, ta- uh, the, the Ten Commandments in anger, but what's more is that God threatens to wipe out all of these unfaithful people and start over. God's strong emotions of sorrow and pain caused by his creation are subsided by his faithful pursuit to spare them because of his promise to bless them and be with them. The book of Exodus ends with the tabernacle being built in amazing detail. With many of the elements pointing back to creation in the garden. God's presence comes down and it fills the tabernacle and Moses begins to go in but can't go inside because the relationship has been damaged by unfaithfulness. Unfaithfulness before and against God himself. And this damage has to be dealt with before God who is holy can allow imperfect people into his presence. Here enters the book of Leviticus. God's presence in the midst of God's people, which happen to be unfaithful, impure, and sinful, and unlike the righteous and holy and pure God that they serve, over and again, the law communicates the danger for sinful people to be in the presence of a perfect God. Therein lies the problem. 
How does a perfect God who desires to be with his people who are imperfect, how does he help that happen? How does he make that happen? The answer, at least in part, is the book of Leviticus. Leviticus has ritual, priesthood, and spiritual laws that break up the book into several different sections. Codes of conduct for sinful people to be able to draw into the presence of a holy God. They include laws such as sacrifices, special laws surrounding God's priests who are representative between God and his people, and the purity laws that surround food and call them either clean or unclean. At the center of the book are instructions for the Day of Atonement, where the nation would take two goats and they would kill one goat and they take the blood of that goat and they bring it into the tabernacle in the presence before God and they would um, cover the tabernacle, symbolically showing the blood that would cover the sin of people. And then they take the second goat called the scapegoat where a priest would lay its hands on its head, it would confess all the sins of the people, and it would be cast out into the wilderness. A vivid picture of God's grace to remove sin from the presence of his people. All of these things were done so that God's people could with boldness know their position and be within the presence of God, and God could be with them. Back to the narrative account, we find ourselves in the book of Numbers. We're in the fourth book. We're almost done. Still at Mount Sinai, they begin to pack up and follow God's leading in the tabernacle at the center and front of their progression. They head out, and it doesn't take too many days And the people begin to complain, wishing it was better to go back and be in Egypt than live the life they've been saved to live. They wander around for a while, finally sending 12 spies into the promised land who come back, and 10 of which report that there is no possible way we could ever subdue those people. They organize a rebellion and they want to lead the people back to Egypt, if you can believe it. Refusing to step into the promised land. Even with God's continued forgiveness and his amazing blessing of food and provision, a crazy thing called manna, don't have time to get into that now, God gives them what they want and says that this generation will not enter into the promised land. They move into a land called Moab, where Moses disobeys God and he strikes a rock for water. It's not looking good. Encamped in a valley, the people of God continue to complain and rebel against his provision and guidance. Meanwhile, up on a hillside, not too far off, is a pagan sorcerer named Balaam, who desires to cast curses upon the nation of Israel, and the God of Israel causes him to prophesy blessing upon his people. 
The end of the book is a prophecy that out of Israel will come a victorious king from these people. Lastly and finally is the book of Deuteronomy. God's people are on the bank of the Jordan River, right on the opposite side of the promised land. They're at the doorstep. The book is a collection of Moses' final words to Israel, which is a call to listen and to love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. It contains in it another large section of laws that God has given to his people around worship and leadership and elements of justice. Finally, Moses warns of the blessing or curse that will come from God's people obeying or rejecting God's law. Knowing these people, having spent 40-some-odd years with them at this point. Moses predicts their failure and future exile. And he focuses on the true nature of their problem and his. If these people, who saw all that they saw, experienced all that they had experienced and were given all that they had been given, couldn't bring about the blessing and continued access to the presence of God, how likely is it that you or I can do so? Don't be fooled to believe that your striving might outdo theirs. Humanity is in need of something much greater to bring about the promised blessing and be in the presence of an almighty God. And it is the reality of a new heart. That is what Moses ends the book of Deuteronomy with. And what is prophesied in Isaiah and Ezekiel that Jesus is going to come to do. That somehow God will bring about the means to accomplish this new heart. Praise God. We know that this is done through the life, death, and glorious resurrection of Jesus as the Christ. For all those who would repent and believe in him as the spotless lamb, the savior of the captives, the blood payment for our sin, the one who through perfect obedience brings us back into the presence with God, the one who fulfilled the law, all of it, because it was he that Moses wrote about. Amen? Amen.